0: Let's open our Bibles now together to Romans chapter 12. For those of you that are sad after two glorious weeks of Joseph and Brad, I'm sorry, but I'm back. Romans chapter 12, as we continue on in this glorious epistle, oh, we need to release the kids. There was panic in the back. Those that are going to the, um, to the nursery, that's uh, crawling age kids up through three. Uh, they are heading down right now, just down those stairs and around the corner. Uh, and we want to provide that for you if it is a benefit and blessing to you. But if you have kids that age and you want them to stay with you, then we want you to know that we love your kids and we're on board with that too. Now, Romans chapter 12. For, for 11 chapters, as we have gone through this book for about two years now with, with holidays, with breaks that we've taken, uh, Paul has been showing us for 11 chapters what it is that God has done. He, he has given us incredibly deep theology in Romans chapters 1 through 11, meditating on God's gracious and good and perfect plan for the redemption of of sinful humans and now as we come to chapter 12 verse 1 Paul's going to make a transition in this letter with with the first 11 chapters focusing on doctrine and theology and the final five chapters now focusing more putting more emphasis on practice on how we ought to live our lives in light of these truths as Christians and so Romans chapters 1 through 11 magnifies God's gracious and good plan in purpose, in salvation. And now in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, as we'll be looking at this morning, he begins to call us to live our lives in response to that great purpose of God. That's what he says is true spiritual worship. So let's turn now to to God's word in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word for this good and pure and perfect gift that you have given to us that through your spirit, by your word, we can come to know you. We can we can hear the voice of our God that our hearts which were, were dead and bound in sin could be made to live and be set free. That our eyes that were blinded in our spiritual death would be given sight and our ears open to hear your voice. I pray, God, that by your spirit, through your word, you would... Lord, transform us more and more into the likeness of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, this morning. Pray that he would be glorified in the proclamation of your word. And I pray for myself as I proclaim your word this morning, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, well, this passage, these two verses we're looking at this morning, are talking to us about true worship. True worship. Worship is, is our response. It is the only right response to God's gracious salvation. But when we say that word worship in, in the context of American Christianity, we usually have a misunderstanding about what worship is. And so you'll often hear Christians make make statements about worship like this. Well, how was church today? Well, I really didn't like worship. You didn't really like worship at church today or, I, I we we just didn't worship enough in church today. What a what a crazy statement those two statements are. They're kind of common statements. You'll talk to somebody that they visited a church. How did it go? Oh, I really didn't like the worship. Oh, really? You didn't like it? Were you the object of the worship? Is that why we care whether you liked it or not? But that's how we think. The, the truth is worship is not Music music is just one way that we worship. We often use those terms synonymously, but it's not true. So if you don't like the way we sing here, it's not our worship you have a problem with. You just don't like the style of music that we sing, and you've decided your preference is better than ours. To which we say, we don't care. So four things that this passage I'll speak for myself. I don't care. But I'm the one that picks the music, so what are you going to do? Four things this passage teaches us, though, about true worship that we want to zero in on instead of my off-the-cuff, rude statements. First is the basis of of true worship. Why is it that we ought to offer worship to God? Second, the nature of true worship. What, What does it look like? What does biblical worship look like? In the adult Sunday school, just to put another plug in for it this morning, we saw that God doesn't just care that we worship Him, God cares how we worship Him. And he has told us how to worship him. Third, third is the means of true worship. How can we worship God the way that he wants? And finally then, the result of true worship. What does it, it produce in us? What's the product of true worship? So look with me at verse number one, in the basis of true worship. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So Paul, again, is making this transition from 11 chapters of deep, weighty theology. The the, the kind of thing that makes our heads spin. The kind of theology where, you know, the Apostle Peter makes the statement of Paul that Paul says some things that are hard to understand sometimes. It's that kind of theology that, that Paul has been giving to us. And now he makes this transition to discuss Christian living. And he begins that transition with this appeal in these two verses present your bodies as a living sacrifice this paul says is your spiritual worship paul here is is literally referencing a specific act of worship prescribed in the old testament the 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 offering of sacrifice in worship But here, unlike the Old Testament, instead of offering an animal, we're told to offer our own bodies, not to be killed, but as a living sacrifice. So in the Old Testament, the prescribed form of worship was to kill an animal and offer that as a sacrifice. Paul says, no, you must now live as a living sacrifice. And in our day, this concept of offering our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, nothing could sound crazier to the unbelieving world. Nothing could sound more insane to our culture than this Think of the major issues in our culture today, and they're not so different than the issues have been for all of humanity throughout time, but in our particular context, you can't turn anywhere, you can't watch a commercial, You you can't enter into any sphere of the public arena without coming into contact with much discussion about LGBTQ plus issues. It's everywhere we turn. This, this demand for complete and full autonomy. We're surrounded, of course, with the, with the abortion issue that has exploded in the two weeks I was gone with this treasonous act of, of leaking a, a Supreme Court um, discussion about this. There, there is the complete insanity surrounding gender and sexuality that we see in the world around us. What do these things all have in common? It is an obsession with autonomy. It is an obsession with me and my rights and the way I want to define myself and the way I insist that you define me and what I should be allowed to do, regardless of what it does to anyone else. And no one, not even nature, can tell us what to do. But that's the world we live in. And this way of thinking is distinctly un-Christian. It is anti-Christian thinking. The Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer number one, the answer to question number one, what is your one comfort in life and death, is this. My one comfort, both in life and death, is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how Christians think. That's what the new heart produces in us and the new mind that that God has given us. This, this, This life that he has given us produces this thought. Where does all my comfort lie? It lies in the fact that I belong to God entirely, that I'm not my own. So Paul says we ought to surrender ourselves in that way to God. And this is our spiritual worship. Literally, that word spiritual worship means divinely reasonable service of worship. The the Greek word for divinely reasonable is logiken, where we get the word logical from. So so what makes it so logical? What makes it so reasonable to offer our very lives, all of us, as a living sacrifice to God? Really the question is, what's the basis of biblical worship? If this is what true worship is, to offer all of ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, then what, what makes that the logical thing to do? What makes that the reasonable thing to do? Here's what Paul says, I appeal to you therefore by the mercies of God to present your bodies. This is the basis of our worship, the mercies of God. The mercies of God is what makes this a completely reasonable and logical and wise thing to do, the only thing to do. What, What mercies is Paul talking about here? By the mercies of God. Well, the answer is found in the word therefore, a very important word in Scripture, It serves a very important text in Scripture. You know the old adage, whenever you see the word therefore, you need to figure out what it's there for. It's an important, important word. What what Paul does in using this word therefore is he connects the practical instruction that we're going to get all the way through the the rest of the book of Romans to all that he has said before in these previous 11 chapters. It's connecting word, connecting what comes after it to what came before it. The theological arguments of 11 chapters is the basis for the practical instruction he's going to give us in the last Five chapters. So Paul says, therefore, in light of everything I've just told you about God and his purposes and how he is working in this world that he has made, in light of who God is, in light of all that God has done and is doing, because of everything I have just exhaustively and deeply said for 11 chapters, this is how you must respond. So Paul is not talking about generic mercies here. He's talking about very specific mercies, the things he has just gone to great lengths to, to unfold for us. Not the kind of generic mercies of our vaguely Christian evangelical world. Where, where, we, where we think of God's, God's mercies and we hear this statement, and we go, yeah, because God's nice all the time and everything just goes great. He's like a big teddy bear in the sky. Because of that, shouldn't we just live for him? No, that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking, not, not talking about the, you know, you'll, you'll hear cr- people who, who claim to be Christian and they'll say things like, the God I worship would never have wrath on anyone. Well, Romans has shown us that's a lie. The God I worship loves everyone just the same. Romans has shown us that's a lie. It's not true. It sounds nice. It's just simply not true. What has Romans told us? Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. By the way, before they were ever born and did anything, not because I looked through the corridor of time and learned something about them and how they were going to behave, I picked one and not the other one. These aren't generic mercies Paul's talking about. God's love, though, it's it's unconditional. Well, that's a popular saying, and it's 100% false. Nowhere in Scripture do we read that God's love is unconditional. We made that up. These mercies Paul is talking about are specific mercies. It's, it's the, one, the, the true mercies of God. The ones worth talking about. The ones worth staking our lives and building our lives upon. The one he has just spent 11 chapters expounding upon. The forgiveness of sins which we desperately needed because of the wrath and condemnation that we were under. Justification by faith alone. Right standing with God through Christ which none of us have apart from him. Peace with God, which again, no man has, unless they are in Christ, because as Paul has shown us in Romans, we were his enemies. It's not just that we had animosity towards him, he had it towards us. We were at war with him, he was at war with us. Union with Christ, that we're hidden in him. This week we were at um, at a place that a lot of people say we're supposed to be boycotting, but we were there, Disney. And out come walking Donald Duck and Daisy Duck. And this crowd quickly gathers as these two come out. And none of the kids went, oh, that's, that's Steve. Steve Jones, he's a freshman at Florida Gulf Coast, Coast University. I'm so excited to see him. There's probably some college kid inside that costume, and what do they see? That there is Donald Duck. Steve, or whatever his name was, was completely hidden in him. This is what Paul has revealed to us in Romans, that our state with Christ is. We are hidden in him. We we have such complete union with him that that's our whole identity. That's who we are. These are the mercies of God that Paul's talking about. Our freedom from sin and the law. Our adoption as sons with an immeasurable inheritance. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us. Election. God's sovereign choosing of His people. Not based on anything they have done or will do, but because of His own purposes of grace. The promise that God will eternally keep and, and protect those whom He has saved. The cutting off of Israel and the inclusion of the Gentiles. The future salvation of all of God's elect people. These these truths that Paul has been unfolding for us for 11 chapters, Paul now summarizes 11 chapters of deep, sometimes very hard theology with one single word. Mercy. He looks back on the pages and pages he has written, which, which Christians will fight over for centuries to come. And we'll continue to fight over until the Lord Jesus returns. And Paul sums it all up with this. Mercy. That's what he sees when he looks at this. That's what we ought to see when we look at this as well. And then he says this, In light of these mercies, present your bodies. In light of these mercies, present your bodies. This is the pattern of Paul's teaching, not just in Romans, but his other letters too. He he moves from what must be believed to what must be done. In other words, orthodoxy precedes orthopraxy. What we, what we believe precedes what we do. Doctrine precedes practice. Practice is just how we are to live in light of these doctrinal truths. In other words, we've said this in the book of Romans a number of times. All of the Bible's dues are really therefore dues. Therefore, in light of this truth, do this. There's, there's an important lesson for us to learn here because much of modern preaching places, places its emphasis on the pragmatic, the, the how-tos of Christianity. Here are the do's and here's are the don'ts. Here are the things you ought, to be, you ought to be doing if you really want to maximize your life and have the best possible life you can have here on this earth. We want practical. We don't want doctrinal and theological, but this is simply getting it backwards, With, with, uh, I will say, disastrous consequences in the church and in people's lives. We we must first ask why before we can ask what or how. We need to know why. To to use Paul's language, whatever it is that we do as Christians, we must therefore do. There, 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 There must be a therefore driving our actions, driving our intentions, if we try to preach Romans chapters 12 through 16, before Romans chapters 1 through 11, the gospel of grace is distorted into a message of moralism. Here's our whole list of the things we're going to do and not do. We never, we never know why. We never know what's driving it. Christianity becomes perverted into a religion of legalism. Why do so many evangelicals lose their kids when they get into college? It's because they have been taught moralism instead of the true faith. They, 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 their parents have avoided doctrine and theology because that's boring and people don't like it and we don't go to churches that emphasize those things. We focus on the practical and then the kids get to college and they have no solid ground beneath their feet and they easily slip away when the smartest people they've ever met begin to tell them that what the Bible teaches can't possibly be true. The end result of this is God's truth is not honored, it's distorted. The gospel is perverted, it is robbed of its power, and Christians are not empowered to live the Christian life. We must first see the glories of God's grace before we can really worship God. Before we can live in a way that honors Him and pleases Him. So, so the mercies of God are the basis for our true worship we're to offer our bodies as a sacrifice of worship to God, if this is what true worship is, then it must flow from an understanding of the mercies of God. Secondly, the nature of true worship. Look at verse 1 again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So how does Paul describe True spiritual worship. We, we get a lot of definitions of what true worship is about. It usually has to do with the amount of goosebumps we feel while we're singing or not. That's not how scripture talks about it. That's a bad guide, by the way. I, I've been to a U2 concert and seen an entire Notre Dame football stadium with people filled with goosebumps, tears coming out of their eyes, literally singing along like this or like this. And I looked around the arena and I said, it looks like a Songs concert. It looks like Bethel music. And it sounds like Bethel music because it's just about melodies and chord structures that are designed to evoke emotion in you. That, friends, is not true worship. That's never how the Bible talks about it. How does the Bible, how does Paul here describe true worship? In shocking terms, really. The language of the sacrificial system That's how Paul talks about it. Now, we haven't experienced the sacrificial system, so the image isn't that shocking to us. We haven't stood there and and seen an animal slaughtered, numerous animals slaughtered, in a very gruesome, bloody, loud, messy way. We haven't seen its carcass thrown onto a flaming altar and smelled the smells that go along with that. It's hard for us to grasp the significance of what Paul is saying here. He's not saying we must bring a sacrifice to God. He's saying we must be a sacrifice. And we need to be clear, Paul's not talking about a sacrifice for sin. The, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus was the one sacrifice for sin forever. So, so Paul is not saying we need to bring some sacrifice. Our true worship is to bring a sacrifice to God that satisfies sin's penalty. Jesus accomplished that on the cross. That glorious declaration, it is finished. But what is Paul saying? What does it it mean to to offer all that we are as a continual living sacrifice to God? Here's part of what it means. It means God doesn't just want your heart and your emotions. He wants all of you. He wants the totality of who, who you are. As that Old Testament sacrifice is completely consumed, he, he wants all of you. That's why Paul says, offer your body. Body just means the totality of our being here. Offer all that you are as a living sacrifice, which distinguishes it from the Old Testament sacrifice. God has, has made us alive. We were dead. He has made us alive eternally so that he might be glorified in us and through us it's a holy sacrifice in other words set apart for god we don't just do what we want again that is unchristian thinking that's not how christians think paul says this in first corinthians 10 verse 31 so whether you eat or drink whatever you do do all to the glory of god do all to the glory of God. He doesn't say, in the big things, try to choose the thing that best glorifies God. He doesn't say, in the midst of a moral dilemma, don't choose to sin, choose to glorify God. No, he says, in all things, do everything that you do to the glory of God. Our whole lives set aside for God's glory. He says it's an acceptable sacrifice. This is mind-blowing. Here's what it means. It's pleasing to God. It's pleasing to God. Think about the glory of that statement. We are commanded as Christians to offer all of ourselves to God as a living, holy sacrifice, and then God will actually be pleased with that. That is glorious. The sovereign God of the universe The thrice holy judge of all mankind. The one that Paul has been talking about for 11 chapters, who rules over all things, accomplishes every single one of his purposes, controls kings and nations, will judge the world in holy righteousness. This sovereign God is pleased with you and me personally. If we offer ourselves to him in this way, is that not? Think about who God is, but then think about who you are. Think about the petty complaints and irritations you have had just since your alarm went off this morning, just since you arrived in this building. And then consider how astounding it is to know that the holy God, the sovereign God, could be pleased with you. This is the mercy of God. It's astounding. He shows us the means of true worship. Look at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How how do we do this? How do we surrender the whole of our being to God? Because if if that's what we're commanded to do, if that's what true worship is, and if that's what God is pleased with, then we ought to figure out how to do that. Amen? How, how, How do we do it? Well, the first half of verse 2 explains it. God doesn't leave us wondering. He doesn't make a vague statement and then say, figure it out. The means of total surrender to God is having a renewed mind. So, So the surrender of our whole lives to God begins on the inside with the way we think. That's why doctrine always precedes practice in the Christian life. It begins with what we think, and it works its way to the outside, to what we do. That's why Paul has spent so much time on what we should believe. Before he ever gets around to telling us what we should do. Two-thirds of this book is just telling us up front, this is what you must believe. And then finally in the last third he tells us well and here's what you ought to do. He he spends 11 chapters un- unpacking deep rich theology because that's what motivates and inspires true Christian living. Th- this renewing of the mind involves we see here both a negative and a positive aspect to it. The negative, do not be conformed to this world. The positive Be transformed in the renewal of your mind. To to be conformed is to be pressed into a mold. That's how you're conformed. It it is an outward conformity to some sort of external form. But to be transformed is to become something entirely different. To become something entirely new. To to change the inward reality. This is the command. Not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. G.K. Beale says this, we become like what we worship, either for restoration or for ruin. We become like what we worship. Our our worship, just meaning the thing that we consider utmost, the thing that we consider the most important, the thing that we think on and, and dwell on and meditate upon, it is always aimed somewhere. We are worshiping creatures. That's how we were made. Everyone worships, even the atheist. Our worship is always being directed somewhere. And Beale says, rightly, it's either aimed at our ruin or it's aimed at our restoration. But it is taking us one of those two places. Romans chapter 1 describes the unbeliever's worship. It is the worship of creation. It is the worship of creature rather than creator. Really, it's the worship of self at its heart. And Paul says that leads to wrath. That worship is on the road to wrath. In Romans 12 now, we see that the true worship of God, the true worship that is, is fixed on the God of Scripture actually leads to pleasing God. To God being pleased with us. We're going to be conformed to the image of whatever thing our lives are pointed at. That's what, that's what we become. Those of you who have, who have raised teenagers, you know that they, they start talking different, like school starts, and they start using different words and different, and you're like, well, you've said this word 75 times today, I'm over it. And then you meet their little friends and you find out, oh, it's because that's how they talk. And they're being conformed into this, this image. That's the truth. Whatever it is we focus on, we're going to become like that thing. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. This is a, it is an active process. This renewal of the mind is an active process. Actively set your mind on the things above and actively don't set it on the things of earth. It's, it's it takes intention it's a calorie burner in both directions actively set my mind on the things above actively do not set it on the things of earth we're conformed to the world to use Paul's language when we uncritically consume what the world is giving us when we just uncritically consume what the culture is is pouring out it is transforming us it is changing us to be more like the world but our minds are transformed when we meditatively digest the Word of God, when we meditate on God, when, when, when we are intentional about that. So the question we must consider when Paul says something like this is, what direction am I pointed? What direction is my life pointed in? Am I doing this? Am I actively setting my mind on the things above, or am I consumed with the things of this earth? Are, are you consistently reading the Word of God? studying god's word are you meditating on god's truth christian meditation is not to empty our mind that's eastern meditation try not to think of anything at all and just let it all flow in and out that is not a good idea christian meditation is not to empty our minds it's to stuff them full stuff yourself full of truth are you doing that is your life marked by prayer and thoughts of God? Are the books you read permeated by the Word of God? Frankly, a lot of Christian bestsellers belong in the trash. I I told a local Christian bookstore a number of years ago who wanted us to sort of endorse him in our church, and, and he had some coupons he wanted us to hand out, and I had come into the store to talk to him about it, and I looked on his shelves and I said, I cannot do this. Because you have good books right next to heresy and you don't seem to know the difference. By the way, if you want to have a local Christian bookstore owner not like you anymore, I recommend that conversation to you. Uh, The truth is a lot of our most popular Christian books are just like our most popular Christian movies. They are full of bad theology or at best non-existent theology They give people goosebumps, but they are not helpful in any way whatsoever. In fact, they're harmful. Is your life saturated with Scripture? How else would we expect our mind to be renewed if it's not that? This is the way. God has given us this good and perfect gift. This is the means of true worship. This is the means of total surrender to God, the renewal of our mind. And the renewal of our mind is not a mystical thing at all. You can figure this out. If you look at how you're spending your time, if you look at what occupies your mind and your energy and your enthusiasm, it will tell you what you are being shaped into. What are the things that make you the most excited? What are the things that that, that make you the most happy? What gives you the most joy? What are the things you think about nonstop all the time? What are the things that, that really bring you down the most? These are questions that will actually show you what your life is pointing at. These will show you that what it is that you truly worship. And it will tell you what you are being shaped into. But it's not enough to just hear and read the Bible. If it does not change our minds if it does not conform our mind. We need more than just to hear the words of Scripture and to read the words of Scripture. We need to have our our mind transformed by them. So here's a good question to ask yourself. Does my mind ever get changed by my reading of Scripture? I don't care if you're 85 years old or 8 years old. Does your mind ever get changed by the reading of Scripture, by your study of Scripture, or do I simply go to Scripture to look for confirmation of what I already believe or what I really want to believe to be true? We must allow the Word of God to confront us we must allow the Word of God to change us. If the Bible says that something is true, even if every other single person in the entire world denies it, the Bible is not wrong. They are wrong. Every person on Earth would be wrong in that case, but not Scripture. That—that's—that's that's what it means to believe that the Bible is God breathed. That—that's exactly what it means. It means it's inerrant. It cannot err. It's infallible. There there is no flaw in it. It is good. It is beautiful. It is pure. And if we will meditate upon it, if we will call on God the Holy Spirit who authored this Scripture to transform our minds by Scripture, He will do it. This brings us to the, the result of true worship. Verse 2 again. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What 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 is the sure result of true worship in the life of the believer? Paul tells us, it's mature discernment of God's will. The Christian who commits their whole being to God based on a profound awareness of His mercies, whose mind is being continually renewed through meditation on God's Word, will have an increasing ability to recognize God's will. That which is, Paul says here, good and acceptable and perfect. John Calvin called this looking at the world through the spectacle of holy scriptures, through, through the glasses of scripture. That's how we see everything in our world. Simply put, it means thinking like a Christian. You will increasingly think like a Christian in context, in contrast to thinking like a pagan, thinking like a non-Christian. And this renewal of our minds is not optional for Christians. It's commanded. But it's not just commanded, it's the sure result of salvation. So, so to, re, to remain in conformity to the world, to continue to think the way that non-Christians think is in all likelihood a sign that we've not been truly converted. It's not just that we're being disobedient to the command of God, we are, but it's also a sign that the sure fruit of salvation is not evident in our lives. We ought to be very concerned if that's us. And, and when Paul talks about this, he's not, he's not talking about finding God's will for your life the way Christians usually talk about finding God's will. Discerning God's will. Christians usually talk about God's will in terms of who should I marry? Where should I live? What job should I take? That's not what Paul's talking about here. It has to do with God's moral will. What is pleasing to him. What's pleasing to him. So to know God's will, we need only know God's word. If we want to know God's will, he has told it to us. He has revealed it to us. He has given it to us. And knowing God's perfect will is the prerequisite to obeying God's will. The mind leads and the heart follows. There there is a, a definite intellectual priority to the Christian life. Correct actions and emotions proceed from correct doctrine. It's the only way it works. It never works in reverse of this. A Christian's intellectual life and devotional life go together. Where the renewed mind leads, the regenerated heart will follow. It always works this way because this is how God has designed it. And so I I hear this expression often. It drives me crazy. These warnings about dead orthodoxy. Oh, we don't want dead orthodoxy. We want Holy Spirit life. I'll tell you why that drives me crazy, because dead orthodoxy is an oxymoron. It's not a thing. It's not a real thing. Of course, it's possible to have all the right information and still not be a genuine believer. Just look at Satan. Okay, that's that's possible. But a Christian's new heart will follow their renewed mind. So to treat the Spirit of God and the intellect as if they are at war with one another, as if they are opposed to one another, is a false dichotomy. That is not how God has designed this thing to work. Psalm 111 verse 2 says, Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Studied by all who delight in them. The more we study the greatness of who our God is, that's called theology or doctrine, the more we study that, the more our delight in God grows. And the more our delight in God grows, the more we want to study these doctrinal truths about who God is. And the more we see of who God is, the more we delight in Him. And the more we delight in Him, the more of Him we want to see. And it just goes on and on and on in this upward spiral of glory. That's how God has designed this to work. So when people say things like, don't talk about doctrine, just focus on practical stuff, that is a very shallow understanding because there is no basis for behavior apart from truth. It is simply not sustainable. Paul doesn't give us any kind of exhortation in Romans until he's given us 11 chapters of doctrine. In John chapter 13, verse 17, Jesus says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Before you can be blessed in your doing, you have to know them. That's the only way. There's nothing then more practical than the knowledge of God. Absolutely nothing more practical. That's what theology and doctrine are. The knowledge of God. And there is nothing more practical than that. But if your life doesn't match up with your theology, if if your life testifies... That you believe something different than you say you believe. And what you're proving is you don't actually understand it or believe it. There's no such thing as dead orthodoxy, because orthodoxy is truth and practice. It is theology it is right theology rightly applied. And this is what we're called to right theology rightly applied, that that leads us to surrender the whole of our being to God. And so offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God. That's Paul's instruction. After, After 11 glorious chapters of mountaintop truth, offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God. Pursue the knowledge of God. Read your Bible. Listen to and read gospel-saturated books and sermons. Meditate on the perfections and the mercies of Christ. This is how you renew your mind. Pray that the Holy Spirit of God would daily transform your heart and your mind so that you will know and desire to do God's will, and your very life, Christian, will be an offering of worship to God, one that He is pleased with. Such astounding, astounding promises. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for this glorious truth. Lord, you have revealed to us yourself in Scripture, and you have told us how to worship you. You have told us how we can know you. You have told us how we can please you. You have revealed to us the way of salvation, that our condemnation could be removed. We could be freed from our bondage and death in Christ. You have given us your Holy Spirit who who not only comes to us and causes us to live, regenerates us, causes our dead heart to live, gives to us the gift of saving faith, gives to us the gift of repentance from sin, empowers us to live obedient lives, but this same Spirit continues to dwell and to work in us, transforming us day by day into the likeness of Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to transform us as individuals and as a church, that we would delight in you, that we would glory in you, that our worship would be in spirit and in truth, bringing honor to you and joy to your people. Pray, Lord, that we would be a beacon of light in this dark world, calling others to come and to believe and to trust and to surrender to this great God. Pray, Lord, that you would use us mightily towards that end all the days of our life. For your kingdom's sake, for your glory's sake, and for your people's sake, we pray these things in Jesus' name.